know how to respond to the question of where do babies come from? Uh, because it's standard as children to grapple with the question when all of a sudden mum's belly gets bigger. Or even better, when mum's belly gets bigger than dad's belly. All of a sudden there's another little person running around in the house because when we are fed different answers by adults when we were little, when we feed children with different answers and different responses, uh, we are so quick to try and define fact by what is happening around us. We're experiencing moments of change in our lives or when we are so completely uncertain about what an answer is, we go to adults. And as children, we're so quick to base facts on what we know of the world around us, which is why we get these fantastic results, uh, responses, sorry, from children when we ask, when they come up with these questions like, where do babies come from? In fact, I jumped on the internet this week, I did a little bit of YouTubing, a little bit of very important research for you, and just pulled out three cracking good responses that I just have to show you, because these responses are fantastic. These are kids that are answering the question of where do babies come from, and I want to flick up Ethan's response of where do babies come from on the screen now, uh, because this is what he went for. He said, my dad tried to explain it to me after I watched Princess Leia give birth in Star Wars, Uh, but I had to cover my ears because I know the whole thing is like really messy and gets U-G-L-I ugly. Now, Ethan gets it. He knows his boundaries, but he's not, he's not very good with his weekly sight words, like clearly getting I mixed up with the Y there. But however, Emily has the goods. Emily has the goods. This is her response. She says, when a mummy and daddy sing Baba black sheep to one another, a baby starts to grow in the mummy's tummy before being pushed out of her lower abdomen. Now, anatomically, Emily's not too far off. Lindsay, Lindsay, however, our third response, Lindsay says, baby, babies come from Play-Doh. Babies come from Plato, and whilst all the above are undoubtedly very cute and also very messed up responses, we as people, though we may not be, uh, uh, we as people are naturally, uh, may not be naturally inclined to do the research. We are naturally inclined to ask questions until eventually we get an answer. But not just an answer, not just an answer from a textbook. When it comes down to the bigger questions that we ask and seek out about the world that we live in, what we want is more than just a quote. What we want is more than just advice, more than just an opinion. We want more than just research, more than just words from someone with a degree or someone in a position of authority, more than just words from someone that's older than us. We need certainty and we seek out proof to find truth. Because proof moves us from hope, moves us from what we hope so to I know so. Proof and evidence moves us to this certainty. It moves us to this feeling that we know the truth. And we are fairly susceptible as children to believe what we were told. Because we haven't experienced the world around us in full yet. It's not until we age, it's not until we mature, it's not until we grow and experience the world that we start to determine and define and struggle with what we believe about the world. And that's why, that's why when it comes to your faith, and so you know, not just your faith in terms of being a follower of Jesus, not just a Christian faith, but your faith also in terms of what you believe about the world and the lens that you see the world through. When it comes to your faith, your faith too has a starting point. Even if you would say you don't believe in God, you have a faith journey. In terms of interpreting and viewing the craziness and the chaos of the world that we live in, your faith journey, regardless of whether or not you believe in God, shapes how you respond to these big questions in life. Your faith has a starting point. 
And the reason we're focusing on the starting point to your faith over the next few weeks is because it is hard to define what the truth is in a world that at times makes less sense than it does more. Because whilst we all have questions and whilst we all want to seek out these answers, we all have different stories, we all have different experiences in terms of who we want to be, who we, would, uh, who we thought we would end up being, who we wanted to be when we were older, who we would grow up to be in terms of our jobs, in terms of our career, in terms of finances and dealing with the loss of money, the loss of a house, in terms of relationships and family life where we feel like we're trapped in this cycle that our families have been experiencing for so long. When we see our, our parents split, seeing our kids leave home, or even when we see family members get sick, the loss of a loved one, we feel like we're stuck in this cycle of never really winning out in life. And our experiences carry with it this emotion, this raw personal emotion of bitterness and anger and frustration at the world around us, this pain when things in our life simply don't add up. But just because the world doesn't make sense doesn't mean it's meaningless. So it would be very difficult to live a consistently happy life when we feel like life may very well be meaningless. And that's why we've crafted this series. We've crafted it as an add value to those of you that have been searching for a solid foundation to actually go about understanding how you fit into the world around you so you have an opportunity to start to understand this starting point to your own faith journey. So you have a self-awareness around the lens that you see the world and how you see yourself in it. That's why we crafted this series as an add value to those of you that are followers of Jesus so you can have a refreshed lens where we can strip back and challenge the roots of an adequate starting point to your own faith journey, where we can actually ask the questions with that childlike faith that we once had. Because when it comes to looking for proof, well, as, as children, we said we turn to adults, we turn to people of authority, people who told us something that we can only assume is truth because that guy at church said it once, our teacher in Christian studies said it, mum said it, dad said it, they told us that. They told us that God is good, God is great that God punishes evil and rewards good, that even though I can't see God, God answers prayer and he answers every prayer. As kids, people truth, the truth that people tell us tends to be enough proof. But what other people and what other Christians say was never intended to be an adequate starting point to the foundation of your faith. You know that. You know that now because now you're here at this point in your life, years down the track, where you're grappling with some uncertainty. Because you know from experience on TV that there's a lot of evil being overlooked in the world. In fact, if anything, evil is being rewarded and the good's being stomped out. And you're not just questioning that because of events that has happened to you in life, but because you have tried to be good in your life and you are certain you have not lucked out. You feel shortchanged. How, uh, in fact, you've been... um, Tried, you've tried prayer, you've tried praying for so long, the prayers never went answered. You were praying over a sick family member. You are praying over somebody else. They would win out just in terms of where they were heading in life and their career and their family. You were praying over your own child. They could just have a successful day at school only to see them come home disappointed. And you're seeing these prayers unanswered. Where's the proof in an unanswered prayer of a loved one? who was sick or a loved one who had died. And all of a sudden, these childhood beliefs that we were told from church, from our school, they no longer seem relevant in the world we live in. And why? Why? Because as we age, as we mature, we know the truth doesn't necessarily always come from people. In fact, we find it hard to believe what some people say because we've realized people are difficult to trust. 
all of a sudden, if people are difficult to trust, our view and our experience with religion, our view and our experience with this whole idea of Christianity doesn't point back to a spiritual experience at all as much as it does to a bad experience with a hypocritical person. And so instead, we seek out meaning not just through spoken words, but we seek out meaning through written words. We turn to books, we turn to textbooks, we turn to philosophers, we turn to scholars, we turn to history to answer our questions, to people with doctor and start of their name all over this thing called the Bible, because the Bible, even though we were told it was sacred, it's simply not scientific. Even though the stories in there were inspirational, how am I actually able to know what is true? It shouldn't be surprising that people have pushed back to the Bible when it becomes something that they just see as less and less relevant to the world they live in today compared to when they heard it as a child. There's everything else matured around us, nothing else surrounding our faith matured, that there was a gap between what we experience and what we actually believe. You might have pushed back to this, but this is what we're going to be unpacking tonight more. But it's why even when we look at this quote that the Bible says, when we hear people say the Bible says, the Bible says in itself is not an adequate starting point to the foundation of faith. For some, the Bible says it's never, or for all, it was none of it never intended to be the starting point of our faith. In fact, if it was even intended to be the starting point when the follower of Jesus movement started, because frankly, the Bible did not exist when this massive movement of followers of Jesus came marching through the world. At the starting point of this Jesus movement that exploded after Jesus himself disappeared wasn't a book. It wasn't a Bible. There wasn't a liberation. There wasn't a revolution. There wasn't a person of authority, but a person who was least qualified. At the start of the Jesus movement were skeptics, were people who had never met Jesus before. But they found a new lens to the world by becoming people who had found something by becoming people who had seen something, people that had heard something, a group of people who had found certainty over something in the world, who knew something that planted within them a starting point to this brand new lens of the world through their own faith. So tonight, to help us identify what the intended starting point of the Christian faith was, we're going to read not just from the Bible. Instead, we're actually going to jump into a little bit of a travel journal Uh, This travel journal actually pops up in a book called Acts. Uh, And in this book, this book was authored by a guy called Luke. And to give you a heads up on Luke, Luke was a doctor. Uh, He was a smart man, a physician. Luke was a details fanatic. Luke wrote his accounts with historical accuracy. He dropped names and places uh, that we can even date back and go to and visit today. Uh, And you'd find these names, you'd find these places in textbooks today too. But Luke also wrote his account uh, as an eyewitness account. He wrote it with first-hand experience of what he was seeing. Uh, And if you love history or if historical accuracy is a proof you need when it comes to faith, you'd be frothing over the work of Luke. And it's Luke's account in Acts that we find the starting point of the Jesus movement. Who knew what he knew, not because of what he read, but because of who he knew. This was before the words of Jesus. No one could refer to written words of Jesus, and he knew what he knew because he lived in the lifetime of the people who knew Jesus. He'd learnt what he knew about Jesus from people who knew Jesus. And in his travel journey, in his account in Acts, he was writing about his journey alongside of a guy called Paul in Athens. And Paul, to fill you in, wasn't always Paul. In fact, Paul was once a guy... Uh, Paul hated Christians at one point in his life. In fact, his job, his career was to exterminate Christians. He went about killing 
Christians, and he didn't become a Christian because he read the Bible. To this point in his own faith journey where he stepped into a relationship with Jesus, he became a Christian because of something else, something that had happened, his own encounter uh, experience with Jesus. Before we venture more into the night, so you know, my, my aim for you is not to believe anything is true. It's not my goal, it's not my objective, but more so my hope for you is to hear how someone who knew people that knew Jesus presented the message of Christianity to people who had never heard it before. How someone who knew people who knew Jesus presented to people who weren't even skeptics of Christian faith, who weren't even atheists, but to people who had no idea of the message of Jesus, let alone who Jesus was. And Luke's account, his writings, not to be read just as a classic Bible or parable that we heard as children. It's a journal, an eyewitness account, and here's how it plays out to set the scene for you in Acts 17, verse 16 to 34, if you do want to read along on your phones tonight, if you have them with you. Uh, but it kicks off like this, kicks off in Athens in the marketplace. And Luke writes, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, um, as well in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. So you pretty much have Paul, he's walking about Athens, he's in the marketplace while he's having conversations with people about religion. And it isn't difficult to do that because Athens was filled with people who loved this idea of philosophy. They had the questions. They sought out seeking the answers. Luke writes on, a group of Epicureans. Now, Epicureans, these guys, uh, they they were kind of the people that were going about life in this way. They were kind of saying, we can't figure out all the answers to life, but we'll, we'll happily just kind of finish off this bottle of wine or watch a little bit of Married at First Sight. Like, we're very happy just to go through life in that way. That was the Epicureans, but then you had the Stoic philosophers, and the Stoic philosophers uh, almost the opposite. They were all about figuring out everything. They'll happily debate every source of evidence, everything that surrounds everything, and ponder everything. And these Epicureans and Stoic philosophers had started a debate with Paul. Some of them asked, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? This was brand new to them. This was starting from the beginning for them as what, what, in what Paul was sharing. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And foreign gods, foreign gods that were being introduced into Athens was a big deal. There were so many gods, you could barely keep up with them. If you were going to introduce a new god in Athens, it had to be approved first, because in the past, the introduction of foreign gods would split cities. If foreign ideas uh, were introduced, wars would break out, people would burn, families would split. So if you're going to introduce a new idea or a new god in Athens, you're going to need to get permission. They said this because of what Paul was talking about. Luke writes, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Nobody had read anything about this. Nobody had read anything about what we were talking about last week over this idea of Easter, this great mystery that happened where Jesus rose. Everything Paul was sharing was from his own experience with what he knew about his encounter with Jesus, what he knew in light of how other people had met Jesus and from people who knew Jesus. So they took Paul and they brought him uh, to a meeting on the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus, not to be confused with asparagus, two very different things. The Areopagus 
uh, to fill you in. Fun fact, you can actually visit this place. It's in Athens. It's just a giant rock in the middle of Athens. And this is where Ares, uh, the Greek god, apparently actually put on trial Poseidon's son, uh, who was put on trial for murder. And this was a place that was the embodiment of judgment in Athens. Uh, This is where the city council would make civil trials. They would make their big decisions. So they took Paul to this spot to assess whether or not they were going to allow him to spread this brand new idea that no one in Athens had heard before. You see, the uh, people of Athens said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. In fact, strip it back for us, Paul. Take it from the start. Take it back to the beginning because you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. So here's 20 years after Jesus died. Someone explaining to people about Jesus the whole story. We see the starting point. And Paul stands up. Paul stands up in the meeting place on the Areopagus and says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you were very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. An unknown God. People of Athens had whacked in this altar just in case they had missed out on one of the gods. Just in case. If that god was to rock up, they could say, oh, we were expecting you. Oh, good. We had a place set up for you. It's all clean. It's all shiny, unknown god. You are fine here. You are welcome. We were waiting for you the whole time, just in case. When Paul was talking, he was leveraging the fact that there was uncertainty in Athens, an unknown God, a just-in-case God. Why some people, uh, we look at this idea of a just-in-case God, and for some people, the reason why they only go to church on Christmas, why they only go to church on Easter, why some people pray before they have a grand final with their sports team, why we go into uni exams and we start praying hard even though we don't pray every day. This just-in-case God. And Paul is saying, you're not certain, are you, Athens? Paul drops some sass, but even we, followers of Jesus or not, know the Athenians had to be fed some truth because unknown means we don't know. This is what Paul says. He says, so this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. In other words, I'm going to make known to you something you do not know. This is when he kicks off. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven, heaven and earth. And does not live in temples built by hands. No temple can contain the power of this God that is unknown to you, that you may or may not be anticipating, that while you can see the handiwork of the painter from looking at the painting, you will not find the painter within, that the painter's art captures only a snippet of the extent of his imagination and creativity, the extent of his creation, that God is too great to fit into the temple built by the works of people, that if he did fit, he wouldn't be much of a God at all. It kicks on. He's not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He doesn't need anything from you. This God is a providing God. In fact, in terms of creation, you may ask what good was it for him to create you in the first place, that this God is not served by man. He expects nothing from them in return for what he has given them. But he made you as a living miracle. There was a one in three trillion chance of you being born into this world to begin with, that this God created you and gave you everything. He gave you life. Have you the ability to breathe? How could you possibly give him something? This God doesn't take, but rather he gives. 
From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He's not just a God of history, but a God that wrote himself into history. He's tied into history, the history of creation. He's not just a God on a Sunday. He's not just a Christian's God, not just a white Western cultured God, not just a God that has been embedded into school curriculum and education. He's not just a God for people that see themselves as followers of Jesus. He's not just a God for Christians. He's bigger than the world and he's a God of all and for all. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of what Paul is saying to Athens, he says, Athens, you want to know for certain? You wanted to know for certain. That's why you created the altar in the first place for this unknown God. And he knew you would seek. And if he knew you would seek, then what does that say about him? It's God isn't trying to hide from you as much as you can try and hide from him. It's the opposite. Well, you, you, can seek out, uh, you can seek out this unknown God with idols, with altars, with questions. All he simply seeks, all he simply seeks is to know you. And then Paul quotes from Greek philosophers. He contextualized what he is saying to the people of Athens and says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his children. Therefore, since we are God's children, we should not think that the vine is being likened to gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, but now, in the past, God understood that there was confusion, that there was darkness, that there was rituals, there was uh, sacred ceremonies, that there was idols, there were things that you were turning to, people of Athens. That in the past, people made a relationship with God as a statue. But now, now God has done something. And he's done something not just for Israel, not just for Christians, not just for those of, uh, that, he, uh, that knew him, not just for those that liked him, not just for those that did good in life. But now, Paul writes, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. But now God has appointed a man, Jesus, who will rule all. But now he has given proof. He has given certainty. Proof moves us from hope so to I know so. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul had a conversation with eyewitnesses. He came from a place where it happened. He knew Jesus' brother. He knew his friends. Luke documents that he met Jesus face to face. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, Paul writes, every, oh, Luke writes, every man in Athens Every man in Athens bowed down to the sovereign God. They bowed down to the sovereign God and they removed their idols. And this is after Paul's big spill. They bowed down to the sovereign God, they removed their idols, and everyone left yelling, gee what, Jesus, as they drove away uh, with Jesus fish bumper stickers on their cars. That's ideally, it's ideally what you would hope would happen in a situation like that, but it was so different because verse 33 did not go like that in all. In fact, it was very much the opposite. It wasn't a perfect ending for Paul. It wasn't a Bible story that we heard one time at church, at school, from that person who always made sure that everything and anything to do with Christian faith always had a good silver lining and happy results. Because when they heard about the resurrection of the dead in Athens, some of them sneered. Some of them sneered. They mocked Paul. They laughed. 
the reels, Paul. That's your drawing point. That's what you're pointing us towards. That's your big application. If that's the starting point, Paul, then let me very quickly walk you through some basic biology or refer you to a psych ward because generally, Paul, when people are dead, they stay dead. People laughed. People mocked. They sneered. But others, others, Luke wrote, others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. And for some, for some of the people that heard him, they became followers of Paul and they believed. These words that came from Paul, who for a long time didn't believe it either, Paul tried to exterminate, he tried to knock off what he saw as this Jewish cult and then one day he met the risen Jesus. So Paul stands on this rock in Athens saying, I'm here to tell you this God unknown to you has done something in this generation. Not just for the people of this generation, but the generation ahead as proof that he knows us, that he loves us, as proof and certainty that he can be known. And we as people, we don't just want an answer. What we want is more than that. We need certainty. We need proof. We need a starting point. And the starting point to the Christian faith isn't found in what other Christians say. And the Bible, and going off what the Bible says, being told the Bible says as a child is not an adequate starting point to the Christian faith. Our childlike responses that come at the cost of those aren't an adequate way to go about responding our own faith journey and the starting point of it. The starting point to the Christian faith isn't found in the questions of were Adam and Eve real? Were Adam and Eve really naked in the garden? Did Adam and Eve even have a belly button? The starting point to the Christian faith doesn't start with questions around whether or not Noah's ark was real. Because, I mean, that's a big boat, and that's a lot of water. Where did all that water come from? The starting point to the Christian faith doesn't come from the question of where did God come from? What Play-Doh did God come from? The starting point of our faith journey begins with a question. The very question that left many of of Athenians pondering and contemplating the meaning of life. What is real and what is not? And where they should place the hope, the very question of that Paul faced to the people of Athens is the very question that he was faced with in his own journey when he met him face to face. This question of who is Jesus? The starting point of Christianity is not religion. It's not a system. It's not an ethical idea. It's not a, a psychological phenomenon, but an event in history. If the starting point of our faith is a person, we have a starting point to find not just an answer, but truth in these bigger questions that we ask about life. Where do I fit into the bigger picture? Who am I? Where do I find my worth? What what is real and what isn't? What am I doing here? Why am I here? It points to this question of who is Jesus? That's why we wanted to give you an application point as you step into the rest of your week tonight. Because maybe there's questions that you've pondered in time by yourself or questions that you've asked around other people in your life. We want to give you an application point, and it comes in the form of something that we call a Form Monday. 
Um, the Four Monday really is just an application point for you to take away into the rest of your week because we believe what's the point in coming to church on a Sunday if it's not going to change you, if it's not going to impact you for Monday. So this week's Four Monday is simply this, to come back next week. To come back next week to unpack the starting point of your own faith journey and start asking some of the questions around how and when your faith journey actually kicked off. What did that starting point look like? What were the questions or are the questions that continue to play around in your head as a follower of Jesus, but also the questions that play around in your head as someone who's never connected in to this idea of Christianity before in your life? And I'm not just asking in light of your starting point when you were baptized or when you first started going to church or when you first read the Bible, but rather how would you define and when and what point would you say your faith journey started because maybe for you, there's a gap between what you call your childhood faith that came with your family, that came to going to church on Sunday, or your childhood faith that came to going to a Christian school, that came from an influence by a grandparent. And now you're at a stage where you're so many years down the track. And you look at this idea of your adult faith and where you are now, where you're holding on to any of those beliefs, where holding on to any of those beliefs from your younger years just seems so difficult. It seems like such a struggle because it would bring you so much frustration believe when you start asking some of these big questions maybe for you it came at the cost of being challenged in a life in this world that you think and you can see has so much more for you that there has to be more than just an answer that points back to Adam's that there has to be more than just some reason as to why you have the people in your life that are such pivotal relationships to you that surely there was a grander bigger picture design Maybe for you it came at the realisation that your starting point in itself, that you being here, you being able to wake up every morning and breathe and living in a country such as Australia where you're in the top 1% of the richest people in the world, that surely, surely that makes you of some value. Surely there's some sort of bigger purpose. Surely the people around you are too valuable to you, that you in yourself are a living miracle, that you are a gift from heaven. So we want to have you back next week because unknown, unknown means we don't know. And I know you come with your own experience of Christian faith. So do I. Which is why I'd love to invite you to ask this question so you have a personal framework to work with as we jump into part two and as we kick on to the rest of this month and have this discussion and unpack this question of who is Jesus and what is the hope that actually comes with knowing him. I'd love to pray for you, and we're actually going to kick back over to the band. God, I just thank you. I just thank you, Lord, that we can be people every day that can live in absolute joy of knowing that you've blessed us with amazing relationships, God. That, God, there are so many things that we can look back on in our own life in terms of understanding our own faith journey, whether that be as a part of a church community, Lord, whether that be being part of what we learnt at school, We've had so much opportunity to learn from you from others. That, God, we can look to the Bible to see the story that was written. Lord, at the end of the day, we have this freedom, and this understanding, and this unoverwhelming sense of love that comes with knowing you, God. And we pray as we look at this question of who you are, that we can see and what is revealed to us is a relationship that brings so much joy, so much hope, Lord, that you seek to know us, God. Pray that we can be people that seek to know you, that we can continue to ask these questions as we continue.
to unpack this conversation. We pray these things in your name. Amen.